Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. Uh, Everald and I met in person for the second time on Monday with Everald in Sydney on official business, and we're back again at it now again today to uh, hit some pollies for six. So how are we, Ev? And it was a good uh, meet-up. We actually had Chinese food, which would have uh, helped President Z feel... Uh... Australia is a good place, wouldn't it, that we're, we're eating Chinese food? Yeah, we're, we're working for friendship and cooperation, as we always are. Yeah. Right, right. Well, 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 now, Jim Chalmers uh, this week uh, announced a review of superannuation. Now, now it's long overdue. Uh, there, there are two, uh, you know, real issues. Who's, who's entitled to superannuation, been, uh, you know, guaranteed uh, the whole taxation uh, uh, in, a, in a situation uh, with it, uh, women's superannuation, not anywhere near men's superannuation. And so uh, Jim Chamber said he wanted to start a dialogue on it. They're now both bought into it. And the main issue that got the headlines uh, is the fact that uh, they want to cap uh, superannuation at a certain capital figure that you can have. And beyond that, you cannot get either tax benefit from or, or a tax contribution yeah, for whatever else you want to put in. Uh, it, Three million is uh, with the limit proposed. Now, this is not new. I advocated this 10 years ago that a, a, a limit be put on and I didn't get uh, anywhere because of felt that they're denying the rights of Australians uh, to put their, if they obey the super laws, even if it gets them 20 million, they could have it now. Facts of the matter are that the whole idea of super is for us all to have enough money so that we don't live on the pension. We're better than the pension. But it, it was not designed to make us wealthy people. If we want to get wealthy, we're going to do that some other way than superannuation. And so I agree with a superannuation cap, uh, and I understand it'll save in tax deductions uh, the government a few, a few billion dollars. Uh, because it'll hit a lot of wealthy guys, you know, fairly hard as far as their tax goes. And so uh, how do you feel? There's a few generations but younger than me. James, how do you feel about that? From what, from what I understand, Chalmers' argument is essentially that, like, the uber, uber, uber wealthy are able to use superannuation as basically a money laundering scheme to dodge tax. Hmm. Um, and like you say, <laughs> there's a couple of billion dollars worth of money being laundered by these uber wealthy people through the super system um and this it was in i believe the guardian i think it's 0.005 percent of people have more than two million dollars in their super or more than three million dollars in their super sorry it's an incredibly tiny figure um your average punter will not have anywhere close to three million dollars in their super so for the average citizen um this is not doesn't change a thing will yeah. not change a thing the only people this is targeting are the clive palmers of the world who can throw money into super as essentially another arm of their grand tax dodge scheme um and anything might to my mind anything that can make the rich more accountable for the taxes they should be paying is always a good thing um you mentioned the pension before and i mean we're in an era now where when the retirement age was set at 65, 66, 67, when it was 
set then, you know, people's average life expectancy, there'd be people, a regular thing, a normal thing, for people to be retire and then fall off the perch a couple of years later. But life expectancies are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And look what, you know, you've got people like yourself, Everald, who are showing that age is no barrier to contributing to society still. Um, so the idea that, like, you know, people should be hitting 65, going tools down, living in their house, never leaving and eating up this, eating up $4 million of super over the next 40 years, I think is an outdated idea, especially as we realize more and more that as you get beyond 65, 67, 70, that doesn't mean you can't contribute and your experience and your knowledge isn't valuable in the workforce or some way either, right? Yeah, and look, I can't understand why Peter Dutton is making a big issue of this, but I can't see a single vote in, in, in it for him. Even the wealthy guys are not going to be silly enough to say this is a crisis issue, uh, you know, for me and the whole matter. And if you happen to have the figure I uh, recommended years ago, 2.5 million in there, uh, well, let, let's say there's a bit of inflation, three million. But if you've got a decent uh, share broker looking after your affairs, which I've got, uh, uh, you, you can get a five percent return, including frank dividends and things of that sort. Now, five percent return on three million means you get a hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year income coming in. Now, if anyone, if that pushes anybody into a crisis financial situation, that they've only got one hundred and fifty grand to live on, don't run. And the poor old pensioners not even get the third of that. And and so that's enough to get. Now, I was in Paul Keating's office in 1993 or two, whatever, when he brought in compulsory super, a chairman of national seniors. I was one of many people who were, who were invited to, to meet Keating. He wanted general approval of a compulsory superannuation. Up to that, that time, we all, if we had a super fund, it would be good. We made voluntary contribution to a super fund that we didn't get a tax deduction brought. We were just being sensible people putting money aside. Now was it coming? And he expressed the view that the ultimate aim, and he said we're never going to get there, but the ultimate aim is to have everybody in Australia with enough superannuation that you don't need the pension. But he said we're not going to get there because unemployed guys won't be putting money in the pension and when women leave the workforce, they, they won't be in. And so he said, but that would that, that would be the goal. So we all didn't, now that that sort of vision has been lost. Most people don't have a who are in super don't have a balance uh, that would get them much better than the pension. You know, to say that the the average balance is pretty low. And so the issue is, should we up the guarantee that's being paid at the moment up to fifteen percent to give people more go? Now that would send a few shockwaves here and there. But if we're wanting people to have a good life and not claim the pension on the taxpayer, that's what it should be. Now, of course, the purists would say, well, the tax deduction that people get uh, to put into their super is more than the pension's costing anyway, so it's all right. But nevertheless, the facts of the matter are we'd all like to be independent in our old age, wouldn't we? Well, I mean, I still think that pension needs to be strong and robust because you've got so many vulnerable groups who now, don't have super. Um, people who move to this country, you know, not as young people. If if yeah. you migrate to Australia at 40, you're starting a new life here at 40 with zero super. Um, women who leave the workforce or, or, or now men, because uh, we're seeing split parenting more and more, but it's historically been women 
leaving the workforce to have kids and raise kids lose out on 20 years of compounding, 20 plus years of compounding of their super. Um, women generally getting paid less than men. If you're getting paid 10% less than men, then your super contributions are 10% less than the super contributions the men are getting. So we still have groups that we need to figure out how to protect, be it by the pension or by some sort of rebalancing of how super works um, for those groups. But I, I think as it stands now, um, like you say, it's sort of impossible for everyone to be able to lean on super and super alone and no pensions just because there are so many groups who super freezes out. Um, you know, uh, there are also, and here's the other big, big problem. Um, we saw during COVID when the Liberals allowed people to take 10K out of their super um, for sort of just keep yourself ticking over during COVID. Um, domestic violence victims were being pressured by their partners into taking out 10K of their own super and giving it to the abuser partner who was controlling the family finances. Now, stuff like that's sickening. Um, and so the super system is far from perfect and it does need a lot of reform. Yeah, yeah well, I think that I have the charm of an elbow, uh, you know, go ahead of it, and a cap, I believe, is, is a yeah. And we've also got to get people also to use their superannuation during their lifetime if they can, even if they move it over into private shares or whatever. There's too many people who don't try to avoid using their super in order to pass it on as a tax-free legacy to, to their kids, and that's not a real smart idea. So there's a few things that need to be, uh, you know, were, were sorted out in in that regard. But it's, it, it, it's, it's on the, the right way. Now, now let, let's talk about hop over the world to Ukraine and one year since the war started, and uh, it was good that Biden uh, uh, went there uh, in the middle of the night on a train and Putin didn't know he was doing it. And and then Putin made a number of speeches. I noticed when he went before his parliament, he was hidden behind the whole pile of cameras so they couldn't shoot him. But then he turned up at a rally with all his faith and we find out later that everyone in that rally was forcibly bussed there and told to smile or they were going to get picked up by the cameras and they were in big trouble. And, you know, and so, uh, you know, it's a sort of a sense right now Clearly, Putin has not achieved in a year what he wanted to do. Ukraine has showed they've got some guts as to how long Ukraine can keep it up and how long Russia can keep it up. It's not matter, but there's informed sources like The Economist saying that since this new offensive the Russia started a couple of weeks ago, they've lost 50,000 troops on the ground, most of them untrained prisoners they took out of jail, mind you, but and they haven't got enough guns, they haven't got enough ammo, and they made this big show, and they haven't really pushed more than a couple of kilometres and lost a lot of people. So we now have a war that's almost descended into a, into a farce, except it's not people are getting killed. Now, I, I can't see peace on the horizon. I can't see... Uh, Putin retreating out of uh, Ukraine at all. I can't see Ukraine saying he can stay there. Uh, he's obviously pushing Moldova around, looking for a, an excuse to invade the way he did with Georgia. And and, uh, and so I think we've got a situation uh, there that's uh, not going to be resolved for a fair while and more people are, are going to die. Well, how, how do you see it? 
Well, what they say about war is that war is fought by people who don't know each other and don't hate each other, but who are forced to kill each other mm. on behalf of people who know each other, hate each other, but would never come to blows with each other. Um, and, you know, the, the human toll of this whole thing, it's like a World War One style meat grinder, um, that very attritional warfare, uh, war fronts bedding in, staying bedded in for months, you know, weeks, months on end, and wave after wave of uh, lives lost to artillery fire and all the likes, um, attrition. It's, again, it's a more than 100 years on from World War One. It's almost a return to that style of warfare. Um, the, the human toll has just been immense. Um, as you say, most a lot of the Russian lives that have been lost aren't, you know, Russia's most gung-ho, patriotic, anti-Ukraine military men. They're people who've been picked up out of prisons or people who haven't been nice enough to Putin and been thrown on the front lines as a punishment and that sort of thing. Um, it's There's just no no positive angle, really, is there? Like it's You're quite right about that. One of the reasons why, as you said, Putin's not getting anywhere is that most of his troops, whether they're prisoners or anybody else, don't want to be there. I remember my, my wife, Helen, her dad, fought in the 1914-18 war and he was in France for two years in the trenches and in the years before he died, uh, many, many years later, obviously, uh, I used to try and talk to him about the war. It was very hard to get him to say anything. He just used to say it was bloody. And, and he used to have an endearing term for the German army. He used to call the Germans Fritz. Now, Fritz was a sausage the Germans loved eating, and so he called all the German soldiers Fritz. And, and he'd even call them poor old Fritz. And I'd say, what are you calling them? The buggers kept in the trenches two years, he said, Deborah. Fritz wanted to go home just as desperately as I wanted to go home. And that's the point that, that you made, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't express it. Um... <laughs> any better than you have here obviously you've got you know you, you've known people who have fought in those major global wars like you say um and you've talked to them and heard heard um what they've said about it and i just yeah it's it, it's awful that the humanitarian toll is just um at, at, at this point never ending you know hopefully there can be a peaceful off-ramp solution soon it doesn't look likely of course as you point out but we all we can do is hope well, the only way I can see it being resolved is that we've got to give Ukraine enough arms and help in order to drive the Russians back into Russia because Putin won't give it up voluntarily. He's got to drive it. When, they, when the Ukrainians get to the border, they say, well, you fellas stay there and the war's all over now. It's whether Putin would stay there is another matter. But the only way you can get a peace treaty is for the Ukrainians to push them back out of their territory and they've done that fairly well in a couple of places, and I hope, you know, that uh, you, know, you know, I hope that might, uh, you know, that might, uh, you know, happen. And and look, it's not just Putin that's the bad guy. Russia, in my view, is a rogue society. The whole nation of rogue society, uh, and and therefore there's a, they're, they're they're a bigger problem on the world scene than the Chinese are ever going to be. And so, so there's a, a lot to you know war out there. Let's move on. The time's moving on, but very interesting thing with the Yes campaign. 
uh, you know, this week. They had their launch in Adelaide. I was invited to go, but I didn't go. I don't do trips I don't essentially have to do. And, and, and I want to say I was invited along with thousands of others. I got an invitation to go, but several hundred turned up at the opening and it went, the presentation went well. But they announced that the Ramsey Foundation, the Paul Ramsey Foundation, had given $5 million to the S campaign. And, and he has. And, and well, Ramsey's dead now, but Ramsey, I knew when he was alive, one of the most right-wing blokes I've come across, and he's one of the blokes who was, was financing those professors trying to have professorships at universities to promote wealth Western culture. You might remember that. The university yep. knocked it back. That was Ram. Now, mm-hmm. his foundation has got fellows like John Howard on the board and whatever. Tony Abbott is a supporter. They give $5 million to the S campaign. Now, that should have sent some message to Dutton that when... Uh, the Ramsey Foundation, the most one of the most conservative foundation company, gives five million to yes. That ought to tell them something. What do you reckon? Well, it's it's really interesting. Um, I'll I'll jump ahead a bit and say my bad guy of the week this week was going to be Marcus Blackmore. Um, Marcus Blackmore being Blackmore's vitamins. You might have seen them in your chemists because he came out for some reason in support of the No campaign this week. Like, I've never heard Marcus Blackmore coming out and weighing into politics before and getting a big article in the Financial Review about what he thinks on certain political issues. But something about the voice, he's just found so offensive that it's activated him. And now I'm not going to be buying Blackmore's vitamins again because I don't want to put my money in the pockets of that man. And yet on the other side of the coin, like you say, you see probably the most conservative think tank in Australia, the one that as you say, was pushing for a bunch of courses at unis that basically rewrite Australia's history and gloss over the genocide of Indigenous Australians um, and all the bad things we've done in history in favour of this chest-beating, rah-rah, we're the best civilization in the history of the world and we've never done anything wrong, um, American-style hyper-nationalism. Uh, and they've, yeah, $5 million is not pocket change. Um, it's certainly not pocket chain. And to see such a conservative foundation come out in support of The Voice, and we've seen plenty of noted conservatives come out in support of it, like Liberal MP Russell Broadbent, who, a um, bit of a bit of a strange fellow, Russell Broadbent, he was, you know, banging the drum about how evil vaccine mandates were and all that stuff during the pandemic. And he's come around onto the Yes campaign for The Voice. So we're seeing... Um, Yes, support in places you wouldn't expect, hey. Well, 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 well yes, and, and, and now that's all positive stuff. The, the no guys are going to have a launch sometime soon. I'd be very interested to find out who's giving them money. I think we can rest assured Clive Palmer will be one of them, but they'll, they'll have a rah rah launch and we'll see what happens. There's a long way to go in this, and there's a factor that you and I can discuss down as well this campaign's on. The Yes campaign trying to win it all on a spiritual basis that, you know, this is the right thing to do for the heritage of the people who founded this nation years and years and years ago, and I agree with that. But it's not a thing that Australian people are going to buy. It gets more pragmatic. Uh, uh, it gets more pragmatic than that, uh, you know, in the whole situation. Most people even the most ardent public supporters don't trust 
politicians. And when politicians say, you pass the referendum and then we'll do all the appropriate laws afterwards, most people say, we don't trust you both to do that. There's just a distrust of politics. And somehow or other, the distrust of politics has got to get hurled out of, the, of this thing to get somewhere. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, the um, the no campaign is, of course, just as political. Um, people won't see it that way because you always hear, well, I'm told at every referendum, you always hear, that, you know, if you don't know, vote no, and that a lot of people's default option is the no vote. And, you know, I think whenever whenever a poll comes out for, pub, for what the public support is for The Voice, it's, it's, it's yes in the 60s. Um, and like you've said before, maybe a lot of that yes support is soft yes support. Um, and when the no campaign starts really beating their drums, that support might fade. But unless and until it does start to fade, I'm not going to preemptively sound warning alarms um, when they're not yet necessary. I, I'm, I've been, frankly, surprised by aside, like the fact that aside from a small minority of people, um, the Peter Duttons of the world um, and so on, like the Pauline Hansons of the world, of course, we're seeing from all different sectors of society, be it, um, you know, white, uh, multicultural, uh, conservative, progressive support for The Voice, um, the Ramsey Foundation being just another one in that line. So we'll see how it turns out, of course, but the, more and more I'm becoming cautiously optimistic about the hopes of this referendum. Well, I intend to work flat out to make sure it wins. I believe there's a hell of a task ahead, but and I'm going to concentrate on Queensland, West Australia and Tasmania, who are the three states I think might vote no and therefore direct the campaign, no matter how many people in Victoria and New South Wales, South Australia vote. But, yes, I, I think we've, uh, uh, you, you know, there's a, um, uh, uh, I think we can be hopeful that it might happen, but there's all sorts of things to overcome. I spoke, once a week I go out to speak to an oldies meeting and, and I raise the issue of the voice deliberately and I accumulate a lot of actions. A lot of people won't get up in the meeting and say anything bad for fear of looking bad, but there's one last Wednesday during the cup of tea we had afterwards that, one lady came up to me, a very nice person, very intelligent person, and said, uh, I feel that that we ought to give uh, Indigenous people some acknowledgement in the Constitution. I, I feel that, she said. But I'm offended by the way they're trying to make me vote yes out of a sense of shame, that I should be ashamed of what happened. And, and, and I didn't do it back then, and I'm sad that, that all those things were done. But I object to them trying to get me to vote yes out of a sense of shame. And so you get all these sort of undercurrents running around. I'm sitting there saying, well, how can we overcome that one in the campaign? You know, there's a lot to do, isn't there? Yeah, because, like, with all due respect to that woman, like, I, you know, you, I, I've never felt obliged out of shame to vote yes. And I'm sure you don't feel obliged out of shame to vote yes. And I've never had someone come up to me and tell me that I should be personally feel personally responsible for atrocities committed against Indigenous Australians all those years ago. I think um, people always, the, the, I think they call it the, the white man's burden, and it's, it's fake, but it's this idea that conservatives throw around that any reconciliation efforts 
um, imply making today's white people feel responsible for the things done by generations ago. And it's, it's, it's a lie, obviously. It's, it's a total lie. And I think the only way you can sort of um, rationalise it is by like a, a sense of wanting to be offended and wanting to like, go, going out of your way to get offended so you can rationalise voting no. Um, that's my personal opinion of it because, again, I've never personally felt ashamed for things I didn't do and there aren't people in the Yes campaign going around trying to make me feel ashamed for things I didn't do. Um, but you're right that people, that that's always been, whenever reconciliation has been talked about, that's always been one of the arguments against it. So you're right that will have to be overcome. Well, I'm pragmatic in this. To win this referendum, we've got to get 51% of the vote, and I think that's possible. A lot of people say we need 60, 51%, and we need four states out of six to vote yes. That just gets us over the line. So that's my minimum goal, 51% of the vote, and four states out of six, and then we're home. Any, any bonus above that's a, you know, a, a hell of a good thing. Well, let's talk about good guys and bad guys. Now, I'm going to raise a name you probably haven't heard in my good guy of the week. I had the day after you and I had dinner, I had lunch uh, in Sydney with uh, David Hetherington, uh, who uh, worked with me on the Longevity Forum, and he and I were the architects of a document called A Blueprint for an Aging Australia, which we prepared and, and, and launched, and uh, uh, it was canned by the the Turnbull Morrison governments, uh, but it was a blueprint on all the things that have to happen for Australia to maintain its financial stability in the ageing crisis, to give ageing people a good life, to bridge the gap between old and young, blueprint for an ageing Australia. Now, David is now running as a Labor Party candidate uh, for the seat of Newtown, and as you pointed out, that's held by the Greens, and and he's campaigning very hard. I've got to say that he's made some progress, but very interesting seat that. And you're in New South Wales, and you can tell me, I'm telling you, David Hetherington's is my good guy because he's got some brains. And if ever an organisation needed some brains into this, the New South Wales Parliament. Now, that seat of Newtown used to be held for years and years and years, years by Carmel Tebbett, who you might remember was. Uh, uh, former elbows from former wife and she was a very good politician and she held that seat solidly and she left there was also then a boundary redistribution but that was labor party territory for years the greens took the seat because the labor party put up two dud candidates in two elections in a row and and they got thrashed the way they should and and, and now they got a first class candidate in Hetherington, and the lady who's the green holds the seat for the greens she does nothing, from what I can see from my research, except run protest meetings everywhere about things. She doesn't actually sell things to the electorate. David's campaigning on the fact, well, if you elect me and I'm part of the Labor government, things are going to happen around Newtown. Good social things, not nonsense. And so I, he's, my, he's an excellent candidate, the sort of bloke we need in Parliament. Brains, intelligence, balance, goodwill, decent bloke. And so... I mean, I'm going to help me. I already have on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, a good guy. Well, I I think he's got an uphill battle because I think Jenny Leong is quite a good MP. She's very active in the community. And Newtown, that area is probably the most green voting area 
in the entire state, um, short of Byron Bay. Yeah. Um, so I, I think he has an uphill battle. And um, in some ways, if, if what you're saying is to be believed, and I do believe it about how smart he is, it's a shame he is running in Newtown rather than a safer seat because I think it will be a real uphill battle for... I, I think Newtown's probably going to stay with the Greens for as long as you and I are alive. Um, it's just gone that way. Um, those yeah, in well, I'll tell you what now, mate. If David Hetherington wins Newtown, you're taking me to dinner and and, and we're going to drink some very expensive wine and you're paying. Have you got that in your head, mate? In Newtown, no less. Yeah, exactly. Now, who's your good guy of the week? Uh, My good guy of the week is the Australian women's cricket team. Uh, While our men are getting absolutely rinsed in India, the women are in South Africa at the Women's World Cup, uh, Women's T20 World Cup, and they've just knocked off India in the semi-finals to make it through to the next round. Um, I've talked before, I think, on our podcast about how awesome the Australian women's cricket team are. And they're inspiring to so many young girls across the country, young girls and boys, frankly, across the country. Um, and it's it's just awesome to see um, our girls over in the World Cup being the juggernaut that they usually are. So um, they've got us rooting for them back home, the whole country behind them. A nice story um, while we sit here through the drudger- drudgery of Peter Dutton going into bat for the top 0.005% of super earners, it's something oh, well, to smile about. Well, now, now, now the, the, the bad guys of the week yeah, are the people criticising Albo. I understand. I don't know what day the, the, the Pride March is on, is today or tomorrow, but Albo declared that unlike other Prime Ministers who've sat in the crowd and clapped for the money, he's going to march, you know, with it. And... That's a good decision by Albo because he's identified the, 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 the gay community and a fundamental part of Australia and a part of Australian society that's going to be here forever. And, and he's going to walk. But people have been, particularly the Liberal MPs, have been scathing in their criticism of him in their spectator newspaper and whatever because Albo is going to march out. My bad guys are the people who are trying to stop Albo from marching. I'm sure Albo's going to march anyway, no matter what they say. But I thought that uh, the opposition of him working with him, who are human beings, uh, they have a particular lifestyle, and most of them, in my view, are far more generous people to society than some of the people out on the far right. But anyway, they're them. The, the critics of Albo are my bad guys. Understandable. And, um, look, in, in a similar vein... Um... Yeah, you, you mentioned, and we, we probably should have talked about this. I totally forgot about it, and I shouldn't have forgot about it because I was in Sydney last night. But, yeah, the, the World Pride is in Sydney, and Mardi Gras will be on tonight, I believe. And the World Pride is like a two-week or one-week-long festival. And um, my bad guy of the week then will be all of Australia's homophobes, transphobes, and bigots. I try not to revel in people's misfortune too much, but I'm so happy that, world pride is in sydney because it makes all the worst people really really mad uh it makes all the homophobes transphobes and bigots really twisted and angry and and um you know i'm I'm very happy to see that we sydney a very multicultural city and a very diverse city are putting our front foot forward and basically saying up yours to all of the really terrible people who want to set gay rights and trans rights back uh, generations. So, yes. Now, I think we've had a wind it up for this week, James. I'll tell you what, 
want to talk about next week is the whole issue of youth crime in Australia, where there's a great debate now, legislation in Queensland about it, legislation in the Northern Territory about youth crime. And and, uh, and there's a lot of elements of that that uh, aren't really being debated sensibly out in the uh, in, in the scene. And, and I think that without any of us criticising polys who've got a terrible job to work out what to do, I think there's a lot of pragmatic things that society can do to overcome all that, and that should be on our agenda next week. I have a lot to say about that, so I would not be opposed at all to talking about that. We'll see you next week, Ev. Yeah, Thanks for listening, everyone. But all the best. You too. Bye, everyone. Bye.